Well, I don't know about you, but uh, one of my favorite things about this Christmas season is Chris- the Christmas songs, right? Putting together the playlist, spinning up the record, filling the home with whether that's Bing Crosby or She and Him has an incredible Christmas album, Zoe De Chanel. Thank you. No? Okay, M Word. All right, maybe that's just me. But uh, this week, as we were spinning up some of these Christmas records, uh, my wife, Erin, and I were singing along like to every single one of them. We know these songs by heart. And our little four-year-old is sitting there watching us, and she asked the question, how do you know all of these songs? And it's like, I, I, don't, I don't have an answer for you. We, we just do. Decades of like hearing these Christmas songs over and over again. I never went to a workshop to learn all I want for Christmas is you. And yet now, from the deep recesses of my mind, those, those opening couple of notes, ah, I know exactly the like, musical journey that we're about to go on. And I know I have to prepare for my soprano that's coming up. But this is true with these Christmas songs is they have worked themselves deep within like our mind where not only when we hear them in Christmas time, they immediately come back, but we find ourselves singing the 12 days of Christmas while doing the dishes in July. That's just me. Okay, cool. Thanks, guys. They work themselves deep in these Christmas songs are just this captivating part of the season. And this is what leads to, man, our, our familiarity with the catalog of Christmas songs leads to this really strange experience when we encounter some Christmas classic that we've never heard before. Maybe you've had this uh, interaction or some experience at some point in your life where you feel like you've got the Christmas catalog down and it's not a new song. There's some classic that now has been introduced to you that apparently everybody but you knows. This is my experience back in the fourth grade. We're at our Christmas party. Our teacher handed out this kind of carol-like image word puzzle. You'll see three of them behind me where a little fourth grade, you know, nine, ten-year-old Ryan is sitting down with a pencil and all of, you know, classmates, and we have to work through and figure out what each of these are. So number one, jingle bells, right? Pretty giveaway. Number 12, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. See it, right? Or number 20, any guesses? The first no L. See the L missing in alphabet? And 23... Deck the halls. You've got them all right there. So we're making our way through. We're doing the classwork. We're ready to roll. We're ready to go. And then we get to 22. And this, I can't tell you how quickly a room of like fourth graders turned into a mob. As we've been making our way through these like 25 questions and everybody gets stuck on 22. We can't move forward. And we're all asking each other what is, we're coming up with, we're making up carols to try to figure out what this is. And so we get mad. We're going in one after another. Each student goes to the teacher and is asking, we don't know what this is. We don't know what this is. And she finally, after like five of us goes up, she's like, she's beside, she's perplexed. She's like, what are your parents been keeping you from? Does anybody know what this is? I saw three ships. There's a, there's a whole Christmas carol. I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day. It's a whole Christmas carol. It's a classic. It goes back. Uh, to the 1800s is what I looked at this week. Classic. Generations. This has been as central to them as Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. And yet for this little group of fourth graders, there's this generational split between this one teacher who this song was a center point. She was doing the dishes in July with this song. And us who have no idea what this song was. I thought of that first, that fourth grade puzzle when preparing for our Christmas series. As you open up the story of Luke's gospel in the New Testament, the retelling of the life of Jesus, 
In the first two chapters, the nativity stories about the birth of Jesus, you have these four songs, these four first original Christmas songs. And much like I saw Three Ships was for us back in the fourth grade, many of these songs are by and large forgotten by us in the normal rhythms and rotations and you know, cycles of our Christmas season. But for the earliest Christians, they were central to it. It is a forgotten classic, those ancient first songs of Christmas. And so what we're trying to do over this series is to regain, to re-listen to these kind of family traditional Christmas songs, to allow ourselves to go back with the first recipients of the Christmas message and the birth of Jesus and to hear on their terms what Christmas was and is for them. So I was talking to uh, Josue in our church community. He is a huge uh, record collector. He has a vinyl collection that will put any of y'all to shame. I mean, his whole living room is just walls of records. And he was celebrating with me last week how he's got on coming to him from family in El Salvador, like these, these you know, numerous of these like very old vinyl records that have been handed down over generations and now are coming to him. And he is so excited to spin these up. He's like, there's, there's duplicates of records of some that were the original pressing and some that were like the special edition later release. And only Josue would be excited about that, right? But the thing is, is he's ecstatic because he's receiving this gift of these old uh, records that haven't been played for, for years in some cases, but belong to this, this story and these people that now as he's spinning this up, he's entering into, he's, it's like he's sitting with them. He's getting to know them based off the catalog. And Luke's gospel is in many ways going to be the similar experience for us. This ancient catalog, this record of the original Christmas stories that we've been given, and like Sway, we get to enjoy and listen to them over the next four weeks, and like him, share them with others. Because even what Sway has already been doing is sending me like links to the Apple Music version of some of these records, and he's like, oh my gosh, you have to listen to this. That same, uh, that same experience is what's before us. This was even reflected in, as we put together the series art for our series, was trying to capture the experience of what uh, Josue has experienced with him receiving these records, was to depict Luke's gospel as this old, you know, 45 RPM, you know, limited press, four-track record that's been handed down by generation and generation of the people of Jesus. And now we've got it, and our chance is to pull it out of the dust cover and, and set it down on the record and let it spin over the next four weeks. And that's just what we're going to do. And so today we're setting the, the record, the needle down on the first track, Mary's song, The Magnificat. And so if you uh, would join me in standing, we're going to read from Luke chapter 1 today, beginning in verse 26. As usual, we stand when we read from the scriptures, like we raise our hands in worship or kneel in prayer. This is an acknowledgement that God is doing something special right now as we read from the scriptures. And so we'll read a little bit of background, and then we'll get into Mary's song. I'll pray for us, and then we'll begin to unpack what we see here today. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, she also has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary then arose, and she went with haste to the hill country, to the town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah, and she greeted her her family member, Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And here it is, Mary's song. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to the offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. So, Father, uh, we acknowledge that uh, for many of us, this reading of of Mary's song here is um, new territory when it comes to Christmas. Uh, Maybe we've heard parts of it, or we know about Mary and virgin birth, um, but this song uh, is the first Christmas song is, is new territory uh, to us and, and seems quite so different than many of the songs that we know. And so we pray that, Father, today by the work of your spirit, through the teaching of your word, that you would open our hearts uh, to Mary's joy uh, at the work of what you've done in her son, Jesus, in your son, our Lord. So we pray that you'd speak and give us ears to hear now. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and be seated. Well, on the uh, first track of the songs of Christmas from uh, the Gospel of Luke, we find what we just read, Mary's song, regularly referred to as the Magnificat throughout church history, simply coming from the Latin of the opening, kind of what she does there. My soul magnifies, uh, Magnificat, uh, the Lord's. It is a song of Mary rejoicing in what God has brought to the world. You could say that Mary's song is the original joy to the world. The original first Christmas song is this declaration of one person rejoicing over what God has done in the promised son, Jesus. And man, the Magnificat, Mary's song, has been part of the worship of the early church since its earliest days. I mean, for centuries, this song has been recited or sung not just at, on, a, on an annual basis at Christmas, on a daily basis. 
Christians have sung or recited Mary's song, what we just read, allowing it to shape their hearts, and it's gone down through the ages. What's so interesting about this song is that this gives us a portrait of Mary that is quite different than the nativities on, you know, that we see around, uh, what, you know, wherever you see them. Many nativities. You know, I grew up where there was a McDonald's uh, in Ozark, Missouri, is where I grew up, and there was a nativity every single year out front of. Uh, of there, and they literally had to start chaining down all of the figures because people would steal, like Joseph or the sheep or something like that. So it was always kind of this weird, like, oh, there's a nativity, and they're literally like shackled while they're sitting there in the manger. But man, we see these nativities, and the vision that we get of Mary is this calm and peaceful Mary. Even her there, like, you know, the portraits of her holding baby Jesus or looking at him there in the manger, and her hair is beautiful. She looks so well kempt. And we're like, man, this, Mary looks great, and she just gave birth, and when we start thinking through, maybe there's something to this, like, you know, giving birth in a barn. You know, it sounds like something that would come out of, like, Santa Monica or, like, Goop and, and Gwyneth Paltrow. It's like, you know, we're really planning on doing, like, an all-natural barn birth with a goat for a doula. Like, we've just found that that's, like, so much better. Like, we get this portrait here of Mary that's so different than the vision that we have. Because in this song, what is she identifying herself as? Is not a calm and comfortable and collected young woman, but one who identifies with the humble estate. This, this language of being lowly and powerless in society's ordering. That she identifies with the poor. She identifies with the hungry. At the end of her song, identifying with the helpless Israel, who for gen- her generations now has lived with the boot of Rome on her people's neck. So your song confronts the image so many of us have about her. This lowly, powerless, poor, hungry young woman. Mary in reality looks far more like what Everest, uh, Everett Patterson captured back in 2014 in his uh, work, uh, Jose y Maria. That when we think about Mary, we have this vision of one, not just an Anglo-looking Mary, but a Mary all the same who's calm and collected, and it looks like the whole manger birth was all a part of the plan. As opposed to what he captured here in this portrait is this vision of Joseph and Mary looking for a place to stay and, and, and down on their luck, and then you have this unexpected mother. I, I love this print. Um, there's so many of these little hints that he has and like little Easter eggs, right? So the name of the motel is David City, right? Uh, on her sweater is Nazareth High School. Uh, on the side of the phone booth, it has Ezekiel 34, talking about when God would come to shepherd his people. Smoke wise men, cigarettes, good news, candy bars, star beer, right? Gold ale, Gloria. You have all of these little things that are all pointing to the Christmas story in this one portrait. But at the center of it is this vision of Joseph and Maria as someone far different than we tend to expect. Someone that I think more accurately holds a portrait of who we find singing Mary's song. You see, this is a different portrait than what we've been given. And even more than that, we find this portrait of, of Mary that's given to us in Mary's song is, is not just different than the calm and peaceful Mary, but different from the gentle Mary of the nativity. If we had to give assign a genre, a modern genre to Mary's song, this would not be like a simple Christmas hymn. It'd be punk rock. I mean, look over the, the lyrics of the song once again. The powerless are those that are exalted. The hungry are those that are filled. As it is the proud and the mighty that are scattered and brought down from their thrones, and the rich are thrown away empty. This is a punk rock anthem, a revolutionary song that declares not just joy to the world, but joy to the weak of the world. The politically subversive nature of Mary's song, the Magnificat, has led to it being banned by three separate governments throughout just the past century, the past hundred years. 
The nature of the song, the punk rock nature of what Mary's doing here in her song has caused multiple governments to say, this song is not allowed to be used in church worship. As German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a sermon in Advent of uh, 1933, this is a handful of years before being executed by the Nazis, uh, he put it this way, preaching on this very text. He said, the song of Mary is the oldest Advent Christmas hymn. It is at once the most passionate, wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. The song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, unrelenting anthem about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. You see, the Mary of Luke 1, the Mary of the Magnificat, is less like the gentle Mary of the Nativity and more like what artist Benjamin Wildflower portrayed in his woodcut from a few years ago. This portrait of of, of Mary standing in the position of someone with a revolutionary vantage point on history, that as it says on the top, the, the mighty will be cast down, the rich will be sent away, the hungry will be filled, and the lowly will be lifted. That's a revolutionary anthem portrayed and given to us in the Magnificat. But lest we think that Mary believes that humankind's are to, humankind, humans are meant to take up this revolution on their own terms, she is quite clear seven times over throughout her song through these seven he has. The revolution is at hand, but for Mary, this is not one that comes about by human hands. It comes about by the very hand of God himself. He is the one that is working the revolution. He is the one that is bringing about the reversal. And so Mary's joy to the weak of the world is all sourced, not in the rising up of humankind, but in the the gracious reversal of God's power at work in the world, that he is turning over this current world order, one in which the rich have the comfort, the powerful have the influence, and the influential have the celebrity. There is a new world that is being turned over, and Mary sees it happening in her very life, the gracious reversal and the joy for those who receive it. Now, the question is, what are we to do with Mary's song, Mary's joy to the weak of the world, as not just one of the Christmas songs, the first Christmas song, the inaugural Christmas song? This is the one that's set before us. It's the opening track of Luke's gospel account, is this song. It is challenging and discomforting. It is upsetting for those of us who find ourselves less likely to identify with the lowly and the poor and the humblest state. And if we have to choose between one or the two, more towards the direction of the, the full. I know where every single meal that I'm going to have for today and in the week ahead is going to come from. I'm not living hand to mouth. Me and, and those of us living here who are some of the richest in human history, and yes, we can talk about the 1%, even still, if you've got a phone in your pocket, you are in, in the top percentage of human beings. If we have to pick one of the two, what do we then do with Mary's song? Because it's challenging, it's discomforting and upsetting for us when we find ourselves not just as the recipients of, of what she's talking about, but the people that we idolize. Who are the people that we look up to? are the people that fit not with the lowly and the humble and the poor, but with the rich and the powerful and the influential. My wife's family was in town for Thanksgiving. 
And so one of the things that we did in showing them LA is we drove in and around through Beverly Hills and they wanted to see where all the stars live. And it was just, I'm sitting in the back seat of the car, um, like you know, crawled up in the trunk basically because we didn't have room for everyone. But as we're driving through, I, I'm thinking about Mary's song here and I'm like, the, the, the reality here is that we live within a world in a city in our own backyard where the very sorts of people that Mary says the Christmas story reverses and turns over are the very people that we aspire to be like, that we idolize, that we follow beyond just like your TikTok or your Instagram. We, we look to the powerful, the rich, the influential. This is who we're going after. And Mary says Christmas is the entire opposite way around. You see, this defies our genre and our understanding of what Christmas is meant to be about. This is not the sort of song that you would hear played at the Grove while you're shopping and going out to dinner. It's not the sort of song you would hear at Century City Mall. It is not your first choice for your Christmas playlist for your dinner party. And so the whole thing is, we have set before us here in Luke chapter 1 and Mary's song, we have, to, we have to make one decision or the other. Either Mary is missing something or, or Bing Crosby is. And what I mean by that is he has the best Christmas album. Either our, our categories for what Christmas is for and about are either that we in our current con, like constructs of what Christmas is all about, we're missing something or Mary is. And part of us gathers the people of Jesus is, is we're wanting to receive from Mary as inspired by the Spirit that maybe in fact we are missing something. Because it seems like if Mary were to come and join us and, and participate with us and see how we celebrate the birth of her son, I think she'd be like my fourth grade teacher to the umpteenth, utterly perplexed at what our so-called celebration of her son looks like in the absence of what her whole song was about. It's, it's upsetting to us that, that this would be the thing that kicks off our Christmas series. I mean, I, I literally, like, this past week, like, before I, I started getting to work on the text, my mom was like, okay, everybody, send me, you know, your Christmas wish list. And so I'm like, okay, we're putting everything together. And then the next day I open this up. And I'm like, are you kidding me? What's, what's going on here? That in one hand, it's the, the desires, the thoughts of my heart, the, the, the comforts and the pleasures that I have, the joys that I have within this life. And Mary seems to say that there is a reversal at hand that is entirely throwing all that over. And so the reality is, is when we come to the passage like this, it's upsetting to us, but we can't ban it. Though some have, if we want to be able to call ourselves true Bible-trusting, Jesus-following Christians. We can't ban it. So what we're most prone to do is we either ignore passages like this, we avoid them, or when we come to scriptures like this, we spiritualize them. So what Mary is actually talking about is we misuse Jesus' language about being poor in spirit. That This isn't actually about the poor. It's about us being poor in spirit. Oh, humble estate isn't about her being lowly and powerless within society's structure. It's about being a humble person. All the while... I'm rich, I'm full, I've got everything that I need. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm playing a categorical difference than how this has been read and what a plain reading is. Michael Wilcock in his commentary from 1979 hit me like a brick uh, this week. He said, Mary's song is quite upsetting for Christians who are rich and comfortable enough to want only to be left in peace to enjoy their accustomed standard of living. And they are tempted, therefore, to spiritualize the Magnificat and to say that it must not be used as an anthem of revolution. 
But that is unfair to those Christians throughout history or today in the third world or on our own street corners who feel there is no lasting joy for them or the world without the overthrow of the current world order. The renewal promised in the Magnificat really involves the downfall of the rulers of the world. And for those who truly hear her song, the only questions which remain are when and how this will happen. And so to, to kind of keep carrying in the tension, at least that I'm feeling as, as we've been reading through this, let's just ask the question of when. When does Mary believe this is coming about? As you read through it, like I said, seven times you have this for he has language. He has done this. He has done that. He has uh, filled the hungry. He has cast down the mighty. He has, he has sent away the proud. He has, he has, he has, he has. Which makes it sound like in our English reading that this is all past tense, as if God has already done all this. Now, to Greek out with me for a second, and what I mean by that is that Luke's gospel and the New Testament were written in Greek. And so as we're translating it, there's some times where it's worth talking about this. And this is one of those moments. You see, all of those he has languages are not in the Greek past tense. They are what's called the aorist tense, which we don't have in the English language. We have past, present, and future. Pretty easy catalogs. And the aorist is this one tense within the Greek uh, uh, language, which talks about something happening, but it views almost all of those happening at once from an entirely different vantage point, where past, present, and future all kind of blend together. It's kind of a way of talking about an ongoing with no real end in sight or real beginning. It's kind of a one big thing that's always happening and always going on. The best way to think about the Aorist tense is by talking about the Macy's Day Parade. Uh, the Macy's Day Parade, if you watch this week, um, there are two ways that you can experience the Macy's Day Parade. One of them is being on the ground with the parade. And when you are there from that perspective with Al Roker driving along in his little car with his helmet, is you experience the parade in past, present, and future tense. Past, there's, you know, the Jolly Green Giant. We saw him five minutes ago. Present, here's some kind of dance, and I don't know what they're trying to sell. And future, here comes the Mount Rushmore float, Right? And so here we go, past, present, and future. I can look down the, the scale of the parade of time and see it all happening. The Aorist tense is the helicopter, the drone vantage point, in which there is necessarily, yes, still a past, present, and future to it, but sees it all as existing at one time. So what this means is when Mary talks about what God has done, she does not simply see this as a past tense thing, but something that is ongoing in the present and will continue into the future. She sees that this is what God does in the world. He fills the hungry. He exalts the humblest state. He sends the pride and the rich away and the proud and the rich away empty. And so Mary has this helicopter vantage point where she is rejoicing because she sees that the parade has now been kicked off and that the God's gracious reversal has been set in motion. And for that purpose, it's as good as done. So that details the question of when, but here's the one that we all have the question about. How does, the, how does this gracious reversal happen? How does the revolution come about? If this is God doing it, what does that mean for our world here and now? Mary sees it as beginning and happening through the fact that God has chosen her. The simple fact that God has chosen a poor, powerless, humble estate, this young woman, as the, as the one through him, her son, his son will be born. She says this is sign enough that God is reversing the old order, that he has passed over the influential, the mighty, and the rich, and graciously he has chosen me instead, graciously. Apart from nothing that I bring to the table, 
He has gifted, he has chosen me as the one who will give birth to his son. Even more than that, how this will come about, she sees this as through the the miracle of of her virgin conception, that God has shown his strength and his might by his miraculous power to create life. If you want to have some fun this week, you go back and read over Gabriel's words and the language for what's going to happen in the process of this kind of virgin conception, and then you go read Genesis 1 and what the Spirit does in the beginning when God creates all life. The Spirit's hovering over the waters, and then Gabriel saying, the Spirit will overshadow you. The, the illusion is clear that this is a new creation that's happening here. And so, of course, it would be as miraculous as the beginning of all creation itself. But even more than just God choosing her or her virgin uh, conception, she is beginning to see the revolution unfold, but she would have to wait to see how this gracious reversal would come about 30 years later in the life of her son, Jesus. And man, if you just read over her song and then you just keep reading through Luke's gospel, you're going to find that Jesus does exactly what she sings about. Multiple times in his ministry, we see him fill the hungry, thousands of them. We see him regularly exalt the lowly through his healing and identification with the sick and even being referred to as a friend of, of drunkard and sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. He exalts the lowly. We even see him send away the rich young man. He does precisely what she says. And then if you follow Jesus' teachings, you're just going to find it's almost like Jesus spends his whole life developing and, and taking Mary's song, and he's unfolding it in new ways. If you go read the Beatitudes of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those of humble estate, for they will, like, he goes through. And then right after his blessings, he goes into his woes, and his woes are for the rich and the mighty and the rulers of this world. So Jesus is bringing all of Mary's song out into fruition. But the question is, and here's the big one, how does Jesus bring down the mighty? How, how if, if that is what's, if it's the rulers of this world, it's the mighty of this world, that this is what's part of the current world order and the reason why things are the way they are, it seems at some level. How does Jesus bring down the mighty? If you read through Luke's gospel looking for that language of brought down, and you're waiting for it for at some moment, by this Jesus brought down, you know, the mighty, you find that Luke intentionally only uses the word three times. The first is here in her saying that he has brought down the mighty. Jesus says brought down when he talks about what he's come to do to the whole temple system. That Jesus compares the rulers and the powerful of this world to what the religious system of Israel had become temple system. And then the third one is when we're at the climax of the story, when we're waiting to see how Jesus is going to bring down the mighty of this world and the temple of this world, that word is used one last time when it talks about Jesus's body being brought down off the cross. Luke's intent and purpose here is to invite us into a whole different way of how this thing goes, is the way that the mighty are brought down is not through the sword and not through revolution but through Jesus' body being brought down off of the cross, through the death of Jesus. This is how, in some way, in the scandal of the Christian message, the mighty of this world are brought down. As Jesus on the cross allowed the weapon of the mighty and the rulers of this world, their cross, death, forgetting and scorn, the silencing of others, Jesus allowed it to empty itself of all of its power on him. 
And then in his resurrection, as miraculous as this virgin birth, the miraculous strength and power and might of God was shown over the rulers of this world and their weapons of death. As Jesus absolved and took all of the death on himself and then arose from the dead three days later. And so this is the story of what's going on and what Mary's song is pointing to is the entirety of the gospel story is that God, in fact, has exalted the humble. He has fed the hungry and he has brought down the rulers of this world by showing how, in fact, powerless they are, that not even their greatest weapon of death can do anything before the power of God. As Bonhoeffer said, this whole song is about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. And so what this then invites us into, going back to the, the parade at hand, is what we have before us is the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Operate is the starting point of this parade of gracious reversals, like the D-Day of World War II. When this current world order, when it, its beach has been stormed, it is the turning point of this story. And yet we live between D-Day and what would go on to be called V-Day, the, the, the day of the final ending of the war in Europe. And for the history nerds that are here, you all know that there was more than a year between V-Day or D-Day before the storming of the beach of Normandy and the end of the war. And in the same way, we are living within that space and time that on one hand, the turning point of the war has happened through the death and the life and the resurrection of Jesus. And yet we are waiting his return when all of Mary's song will come to its full fruition and fulfillment. And we live now in the middle space. That the revolution, in fact, has begun. That God's gracious reversal is at work. And so what this means is that for the poor and powerless of this world, that whenever they have come into contact with Mary's song, it has been an anthem of joy for them because God is on our side even though the world may be against us. But for us, when it seems like the world most of the time is on our side, the question that we have to ask is will we allow this gracious reversal of what God has done in choosing Mary and the elect and him sending his son birthed in a manger, birthed as a human, and the way that he's brought about this change, will we allow the gracious reversal to scatter our proud thoughts, to bring us down and to reveal the emptiness of our riches? You see, Mary's song is clear. It has and it will happen. God's gracious invitation for you and I is actually the joy of being a part of his gracious reversal parade now as opposed to when it's too late. And so here's the reality is, is some of you here that what this means is, okay, now for those of us that live on the west side, that what Mary's song means is we've got to give ourselves our 40 lashes of penance where we feel bad about the fact that we own an iPhone and we have a house and more than two pairs of shoes. And that is the opposite of what Mary's song is trying to do. Mary's song is an invitation to where true joy, true magnificence, true lasting life and blessing is found. And she is inviting us off of the cul-de-sac of ambition and pride of consumerism and our riches and our experiences and to actually find that true lasting joy is found in the parade of the gracious reversal. And so this is what's so hard for us is, is, here's the thing, is we have these two invitations before us each Christmas, is do we enter into the way of the gracious reversal to truly see Jesus for who he is as born in a manger and that that is where God shows his strength and might, where God's joy is most deeply experienced, or Cyber Monday, or 
right? The parties and the food, right? This is the, there's the invitation between us. And far too often, I think, we are trying so hard to muster up all the joy that we can through the parties and the experiences and the gifts because we are so joyless at what this is offering. And the deception of this world is what you need is a little bit more to find that joy, not something entirely different. I saw in the LA Times this week that what they had was a whole uh, piece on what, what you really need to experience joy this season is the ability to practice some self-care. And what they were arguing for is you need to buy some gifts for yourself. This is the, this is the end point of late-stage capitalism. <laughs> we're, we're a holiday that is sourced in the generosity of God, of giving of self for the other comes that if you actually want to find joy, you can't trust on your family to get you the gifts that you want. You need to actually just go ahead and get them for yourself. See, the grace of God has come not to condemn you for wherever you're at, but to invite you that lasting joy is found in an entirely different space, an entirely different way of life. And that 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 insatiable seeking for joy that you're looking for, where you will play the Christmas carols as loud as you can and shop till you drop, that the Cyber Monday and the Black Friday, the party that you will go after all of it, and at the end of the season then comes December 26th, and it's like, well, that was fun. This isn't actually inviting you to a lasting joy. Not a past, present, or, or simply future joy, but the aorus, the parade sense joy of being a part of the vantage point of God, of your life being swept up in the joy of the gracious reversal of what he's done. And that is the incredible gift for those of us who receive the gracious reversal through faith in Jesus and giving ourselves over to him. As we not only receive joy, we become members of that ongoing parade of gracious reversals kicked off by Jesus, and then will be climaxed and ended by Jesus at the end of history. That we in the present now are those, those, you know, we're the ones pulling the float of the gracious reversal, of the joyous revolution, because the church is meant to be the community where God does all of Mary's song, in the present tense. The community of Jesus' people is where God shows his strength, where God and who God through exalts the powerless, how he fills the hungry, how he, yes, even sends the rich away and brings down the rulers of this world and scatters the proud. It is through a church community dedicated to the way of Jesus. As we, by God's spirit, because it is him working through us, join Jesus in his humble estate of identifying with the poor and the powerless and the hungry, and we surrender ourselves in a deeper self-giving love and surrender. Because this is, this is actually what Christmas is all about. And so, just as a simple practice for this week and for this coming season, a way for us to practice the joy of Christmas is to spread the joy of Jesus by spending less and giving more. By spreading the joy of Christmas by practicing gracious reversals. Now hear me in the midst of all that I'm saying. I am not a Scrooge. I love Christmas. I love giving gifts. I love going to parties and celebrating with others, not just the year that we've lived, but also celebrating together the gift of Jesus. But let's do our best to remember that the original practice of gift giving at Christmas was first and foremost gifts of generosity to the poor. Before there was ever the tree and throwing things underneath there and getting all of the toys that you, the, the, the starting point was gifts of generosity to the poor. 
In fact, St. Nicholas, who in, in fact was actually a real person, he's one of the church fathers, uh, who then, you know, through legend, we now get good old jolly St. Nick. But this actual historical person, wait a minute, when you read the biography of St. Nicholas and find what we know about him, we know that he came from a, a, a rich family. He was the full and the powerful. He had all of that before him in his life. And he was transformed by Jesus. And St. Nicholas gave the rest of his life to a life of gracious reversals and generosity. And as legend says, at one point, punching a heretic. But that's a story for another day. But St. Nicholas... I mean, the legend of, of, you know, jolly St. Nick coming down through the chimney with gifts is actually grounded in the historical account that regularly during this the kind of Advent time, St. Nicholas would regularly take bags of money and throw them in the windows of the poor. So this whole story developed, and it was all grounded not in kids getting a, you know, what is it, a red ruby, um, uh, you know, gun or whatever, um, but actually these gifts of generosity to the poor. And so, man, as we're looking to spread joy and to experience it for ourselves in this Christmas season, man, the Christmas story sets before us, at the center point of the story, is a mother who is powerless, poor, and hungry. A young mother who is powerless, poor, and hungry without the needs that she has, and so she is fully uh, dependent on God, and, and the reality is, is that we as God's people are tasked now with the responsibility of being able to meet those needs. These women are a city who look like Mary, like Patterson's Jose Maria. And so one of the ways that, that I'm inviting you to do this in the month ahead is uh, one of our, our partners, Claris Health. Claris Health is a nonprofit. It's a community care clinic that is based out of the West Side that is focused on providing free and affordable medical, mental uh, health, and, and support services to women at risk or facing an unintended pregnancy. And man, if that's not the Christmas story in a way that we can enter into it, I don't know what is, right? And so here's the thing. There's, on the back of that QR code, when you scan that, there's the series resources. And if you scroll down to series practices, there's a handful of ways that they're needing help. One of the main one is through this adoption program that they do of adopting families to help provide Christmas gifts for these families. Uh, it's around per family, $125. And man, there's 15 families we easily could adopt between our discipleship groups and the families in our church. And so that's on there. If you or your discipleship group or your family, you want to commit to that this year, there's also some events where maybe finance, maybe you are in a financial place where you can't necessarily give. Um, they also have events that they're needing help with something as simple as wrapping presents um, or hanging out with kids and hosting them at some of these Christmas parties they do. Um, I don't know about you, but that seems like a really simple and, and easy way to jump right in. And so along with Claris, I just want to set before you, those are those opportunities. Let's jump into that. But who in your community are the hungry and the poor, and how can you exalt them? How can you fill them? How can you meet their needs? I mean, we have other partners that, that um, are needing um, resources this year, whether that's Chrysalis or uh, in the midst right now of a refugee crisis that um, the International Institute of Los Angeles does a lot of work with um, uh, refugees, asylum seekers, and the vulnerable there's, we live in a city with more than enough opportunity. In this Christmas season, I think the invitation is, instead of walking by it, what would it look like for us to walk into it? What would it look like for our community to allow Mary's song and the joy of gracious reversals to ring loud and clear within our hearts and souls? See, Mary's song came loud and clear to Jonathan Myrick Daniels when he was a 26-year-old seminary student in Cambridge. He was studying there to become an Anglican priest, 
When John learned of Dr. Martin Luther King's call from northern volunteers to go to Selma, Alabama. Upon hearing this, John's first impulse was to go, but then he asked himself, can I spare the time? Do I want to spare the time? Do I want to go? And reluctantly, he concluded the idea was impractical at this point of his life. But later that evening, John changed his mind and went to Alabama. During his time there, his last act was to shove Ruby Sales, a black teenager, out of the path of a shotgun blast intended for her. Uh, He was shot and killed in August of 1965. Ruby Sales today is a 73-year-old woman who has gone on to spend her life as a theologian and a scholar and an advocate for racial justice and reconciliation. Speaking of Jonathan Daniels, Martin Luther King Jr. stated, one of the most heroic Christian deeds of which I have heard in my entire ministry was performed by Jonathan Daniels. In 1991, he was designated as a martyr in his church denomination. So what happened on that night for Jonathan Daniels between saying, it's impractical, I've got too many other things in front of me, and concluding that he needed to go to Selma? Before he was killed, John explained his calling to Alabama. He says, I had come to the evening prayer as usual, Um, And as usual, I was singing the Magnificat with special love and reverence I always felt for Mary's glad song. He has showed strength with his arm. As the lovely hymn of the God-bearer, that is Mary, continued, I found myself peculiarly alert, suddenly straining toward the decisive, luminous, spirit-filled moment, and then it came. He has exalted the humble and meek. He has filled the hungry with good things. I knew then that I must go to Selma. Mary's song was heard loud and clear by John, and in his life and even in his death, we have this profound example of what Mary's song, when truly heard by someone, does to a person. The act of casting off the comforts of our current stat, like way of living and giving ourselves, and even in his case, entirely unto death for someone else. It was heard not by John, but originally this song was heard loud and clear by Jesus. Like I said earlier, if you go and read through the Beatitudes or the woes or really any of Jesus' teachings, you'll find in some way it seems like he's expounding upon some part of this song. This is pure conjecture, but I don't think it's too far out to believe that that more than likely that this song was Jesus' lullaby growing up. That as his mother put him to bed every single night, she magnified the Lord and she praised him for what he had done in providing her this little boy. And Jesus grew up hearing the story of the God who exalts the poor and he sends the rich away empty and he calls and brings about a gracious reversal and all of his faithfulness to his people Israel. That this is the story that Jesus was raised in and gave himself to. Not simply just because of the fact that his mother sang this song over her, but because him being God, this is the very thing that he has always desired to do. So the invitation for us today is to hear Mary's song loud and clear. To allow ourselves to see the parade of God's gracious, joyous reversal that is on the move. This revolution has begun. And will we here allow ourselves to say, Maybe I've been missing something every single year when I come to Christmas. And what would it look like for me to, in hearing this song, allow my proud thoughts to be scattered, allow my prideful ambition and my desires to be set down, and for my riches to have their emptiness revealed? 
not for the sake of berating or, or guilt or judgment, but that actually when that happens, that is when the joy of Christmas is actually most deeply felt as we join the parade of God's gracious reversal moving through history. And so that's what's before us today. Let's pray as we move into a time of response.